Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're looking at a larger section. We're going to look at Acts 18, verse 18, through chapter 19, verse 20 this morning. You can find it on page 927, 928 in the Bibles provided there in the pews. Now, if we were to take our two fingers and place them on the pulse of the religious culture, religious climate of our day, what we'd find is that the sentiment of the day is, you know, you can believe basically whatever you want to believe, and that's fine just as long as it doesn't affect me, right? That really anything goes in religious tolerance. You believe, you worship in any way that you so desire, just as long as it has no impact on what I want to believe and what I want to do with my life. Right? We see this time and time again in just about everything that we come into. Faith is relative to the individual and subject to personal preferences. Now that being said, sadly, Christianity in America is not all that different. Basically, as long as you profess to have some faith in Christ, no matter how you define it, then it's okay you're a Christian. That really anything goes just as long as you add the name Jesus to it. It's whatever you want to believe, however you want to define it. It doesn't matter what you actually affirm or deny about the teachings of Scripture. It doesn't matter how you live, what your heart desires, what your life truly reflects. Just as long as you say that you believe in Jesus, then you are a Christian. But friends, is that really what the Bible teaches? Is that really what Christ meant when he said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and follow him? Is that what the apostles taught? Is that what the early church believed? We have to be careful here, really, really careful, because the way you would answer those questions will impact how you live, It will impact how you view doctrine, what priorities you would set for the church, and how you will or will not pursue growth in Christ. If all we need to do is to get someone to profess faith in Jesus, however they would define that, boy, then that changes everything, right? Things like unity or doctrine, or holiness, or the church, that doesn't matter at all. And all of our ministry efforts climax in getting someone to pray a sinner's prayer, or to get baptized, or, or to recite some catechism, or, or something like that. All we have to do is get them to respond initially, and then it's good. But if being a Christian is more than just saying that you believe in Jesus then it's essential for us to grasp what that is. Now, now clearly there's a distinction in Scripture between those who are Christians and those who are not. Those who are outside the church versus those who are inside the church. And even in our passage this morning, we're going to run into a group of people that are stubborn. They continued in unbelief. They spoke evil of the way of Christ to the congregation, right? So we know those guys are not believers, and then there were many others that didn't do those same things. 
But even among those who did not outwardly reject Christ, there were some who did not believe in Christ, but tried to invoke the name of Jesus in order to get what they wanted. There was another group that, who were actually called disciples, but not Christians because they had not received the Holy Spirit. And there's even a very gifted man who's competent in the Scriptures, who faithfully taught the way of Jesus, but still needed to learn the way of God more accurately. You see, being a Christian is more than simply following or or saying that you believe in Jesus. It's about earnestly and faithfully and ever more accurately following the way of Christ as God defines it in His Word. That is clearly the priority that we see in Paul and in the church in our passage this morning. And because that's the case, friends, we want that to be ours. And so what we're going to see this morning from our text is that strengthening the church in the will of God requires accuracy for the salvation of souls and the glory of Christ. Right? Strengthening the church in the will of God requires accuracy for the salvation of souls and the glory of Christ. And what I pray for us is that we would all be taught this way more accurately, even as we look at the text this morning. So if you would, please turn your attention to Acts 18, beginning in verse 18. It says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. And he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they had asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he had arrived, he greatly helped those through, who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus." And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. 
There was about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found them to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Uh, we just covered a lot of ground right there. A lot of things happened, a lot of different cities. Things were moving really, really quickly. Paul covered 1,500 miles right there in that passage I read to you. And we can read this and we can kind of just, you just kind of glide right on over and not really think about what this means for us. But friends, let me just assure you, this has a lot of implications for us. That as followers of Christ, we all have responsibilities both to teach and to follow the way of Christ more accurately. And that will have implications on every single one of us. Strengthening the church in the will of God requires accuracy for the salvation of souls and the glory of Christ. And we're just going to look at that statement in three parts today. And so first, strengthening the church in the will of God. Friends, knowing the priorities of Christ's apostles and the church, it helps us to understand what faithfulness looks like as followers of Christ. And we want that, right? Because it's our privilege and it's our responsibility to participate in Christ's mission of making disciples of all nations as we live out the gospel and as we proclaim the gospel with our lives. Not just when we gather here together, though that certainly should be the case, but even when we're alone, when we're in our homes, at our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, we are called to make disciples of Christ. And this great commission that we've been given was not just for them. It wasn't like it was just for the apostles. It's for every single one of us who would call ourselves followers of Christ. We are to do the very things that we see Christ and his followers doing. Right? It shouldn't be distinct. There shouldn't be some separation between what Paul did and, and what I do or, or what Peter did and what you do. Now, this, this plan of discipleship that we see throughout the book of Acts has been 
ought to be familiar to us by now. We see that they, they focus on engaging and evangelizing they lost. They, they establish new believers in the faith. They equip the church for the work of ministry. And they expand the mission through multiplying leaders, through planting churches, by taking the gospel into new areas where Christ has not been named. We even see it here in this passage, all of those things taking place. And for example, in, in chapter 18, verse 19, and again in 19, verses 8 through 20, we see Paul engaging and evangelizing the lost, those who did not know and follow Christ. He reasoned with them and persuaded with them from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. With Him comes the kingdom of God, and that they are to repent and believe. And he did this so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Apollos, we see him doing something similar at the end of chapter 18 in verses 24 through 28. But notice that their work didn't stop there. It wasn't just the concern of the the early church to get the gospel out there and to get some people to at least proclaim the name of Jesus in some way. It's just as long as like they say, they add Jesus to their mostly full lives, then, then that's all that is necessary and that's what we're happy with. No, we see that actually Paul was most concerned about establishing believers in the faith and equipping the church for generational ministry, ministry that would continue long, long after he was gone, even in the face of persecution. In verse 18, after not being arrested or forced out of town by the Roman consul, uh, proconsul Gallio, Paul stayed many days longer, actually a year and a half in Corinth. What's he doing? He's establishing and equipping the church there before he set sail for Syria. On his return, down in verses 22 and 23, having landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And this is more than likely the church in Jerusalem, the very, very first church. I'm like, okay. Don't they have things together? Why do they need Paul to come up there? But again, he's focused on establishing and equipping the church before he made his way to Antioch, his sending church, right? And what did Paul do when he went to Antioch? We see him strengthening the believers there, right? This is the church that sent him out. They were the ones that paid his way. And yet he goes back because his priority is to equip the church there. When he was sent off uh, in verse 23 on his third missionary journey, he began by strengthening the disciples throughout the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. This is now his third time visiting them. And his first one, that's where he went and he engaged and evangelized. He established the church there. He returned to again equip and establish them further on his second missionary journey. And now here it is, his third missionary journey. He's going to them yet again because he wants to make sure that they stand firm in the faith. When he arrived in Ephesus again in chapter 19, at this point, Apollos is back in Corinth, and he's establishing and strengthening the church there, as it says in 1827, greatly helping those who through grace had believed. And Paul would spend a total of three years in Ephesus, not just engaging and evangelizing, getting people to say that they follow Jesus in some way, but establishing and equipping the church in the truth. And throughout this whole passage, which would have spanned at least three years and 1,500 miles. So it was like two seconds to read through it all. 
the mission of the church was expanded, not just through Paul's ministry, but through the leadership of Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos as well. Ministry was being multiplied as the mission of Christ was extended. Guys, this is, I know that this is a bit redundant. We've seen this time and time again as we've gone throughout the book of Acts, but it's essential that we get this through our heads so that we understand the mission of the church. And not just the mission of the church like, okay, you know, that's what this this group of people gathered here is about, not really about me, but just like as I'm part of the church, as a follower of Christ, this is to be my mission as well. That the mission was to engage and evangelize, establish, equip, and expand. That's what we see them doing over and over again. The goal of the church is not to get you to feel comfortable. It's not to get people to come back every week to a weekly worship service, as good as those things are. The mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. And being a disciple of Christ has to be defined the way that Christ would define it, not the way that we would. It's done by not just by engaging people in spiritual dialogue or sharing stories or testimonies or, or maybe one-minute gospel snippets. It doesn't happen when we, I do a 20-minute sermon where it's not really a sermon at all because all I'm doing is telling you funny stories. But it's about proclaiming the Word of God faithfully. The church is about more than developing moral friendships that oblige us to uphold our religious duties. No, a disciple of Christ is a forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in lifelong repentance and faith. A true disciple of Christ not only is seeking to learn Christ more accurately throughout his life, but he's making disciples by living and proclaiming the gospel as lifelong learners of Christ who are making lifelong learners of Christ of people from every nation. And so when we think about that, it's not just about, okay, what's the minimum, right? Getting people to attend a worship service, doing some evangelism programs, supporting a missionary over here, or just getting people together for fellowship, for some good food and some friendship and all that kind of stuff, or even getting people involved in discipleship programs where they come to Sunday school. It's all of that and far, far more. Now, making disciples includes it all. Engaging and evangelizing, establishing, equipping, and expanding the mission as lifelong learners of Christ make lifelong learners of Christ from every nation. And we do that because the salvation of souls and the glory of Christ is at stake. But friends, to do that effectively so that the church would grow and thrive for generations to come, even in the face of persecution, Paul had to spend a lot of time establishing and equipping the church. Now notice that Paul doesn't get all hung up on immediate results, and that's important for us because we tend to look at that. We look at how much space is there between the pews, how many people we have show up on Sunday, how full is the parking lot. That's a healthy ministry in today's standards, but not according to Paul. For Paul, it was about who's a lifelong learner of Christ, who is showing genuine repentance and faith. He had long-term, genuine, Christ-exalting discipleship in, in his mind. He's not concerned about how many people can we get to make easy false professions. 
Friends, I mean, it's like this building right here. I mean, you think about it, like this building's an example in, in a silly way, right? The people that built this building 120 years ago could have gone cheap. You know, they could have decided to meet in a circus tent. And let's face it, with the amount of money that they spent on this building, they could have had quite the circus. I mean, they could have bought the elephants and the, and the clowns and the trampoline, the whole nine yards, right? That would have been one heck of a circus, but they didn't do that. Instead, they chose to build a building that would last. That as long as it was faithfully maintained, that building would outlive the pole barn structures, not just of their day, but ours as well. And that's the same type of mentality we need to have when we think about discipleship. When we think about what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Christ. Not just in terms of getting people to make decisions. Getting, as long as people say that they're a follower of Jesus, then that's all that matters. We want to see lifelong learners of Jesus who regularly practice repentance and faith and who are eager to help others to do the very same things. That's our goal. But friends, this is not just one option or one method among many. It's easy for people to kind of look at it as like, okay, yeah, that's, that was Paul's strategy and that's fine. But, you know, there are other strategies out there, other approaches we can take. And, and those are equally fine. But friends, we need to recognize that these strategies and plans and methods that Paul uh, is, is engaged in does not come from his own mind or his own agenda, but from his active obedience and dependence upon God. His desire to be faithful to Christ in all things. That this was not just Paul's method. This was Christ's mission. And as a faithful servant of Jesus, Paul was striving to obey it. And so if it's Christ's mission, and we are Christ's, it's to be ours as well. Like Paul, we must strive to be obedient to it. Paul's labor to strengthen the church was a byproduct of his desire to obey Christ in all things, okay? So even when you think about, okay, this call of a disciple, you know, a lot of times we're thinking about what I need to do, who I need to engage with first. No, it starts here. What does it mean for me to obey Christ in all things? That's what I want. Because it's that, this desire to love Christ and obey Christ and know Christ that's going to motivate us and properly lead us to making disciples of others. No, Paul desired to obey Christ. And we see that that's the motivation in him finishing up this second missionary journey and launching out on this third one in this passage. This is why he was willing to suffer as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's why he was even willing to make this vow in verse 18. Now Luke doesn't give us much information about this vow. Was this a vow of thanksgiving for God's previous protection and deliverance because in chapter 18 God showed up to to Paul in a vision and promised him that no harm would come to him as he proclaimed the gospel and made many disciples in Corinth so maybe it's about that or, or maybe Paul made a vow of a future blessing like just saying you know Lord we I, I'm making this vow as I'm praying for your protection and safety as I make my way back to Jerusalem and then to Antioch or perhaps Paul made this vow simply to engage with the Jews in Ephesus 
to sh- as a gesture to show his trust in God and, and his loyalty to the traditions of Israel that would allow him to talk more freely with fellow Jews in Ephesus about the gospel. We, we don't really know. But what we do know from this text is that this vow was a voluntary expression of Paul's faithfulness to Christ. Right? He, he didn't have to do this. It wasn't a requirement saying, okay, if you're going to be faithful to Jesus, you've got to make vows. But he chose to make that vow as an expression of his faithfulness to Christ. It appears to be under the leading and direction of God. As Paul prayed and worshipped the Lord and sought his will. Paul's not trying to barter with God to get what he wanted. This is not one of those vows where you're like, okay, if you, God, if you promise to do this, then I promise to do that. It's not one of those kinds of things. And once this vow was made, Paul did not deviate from it, even when the Ephesians wanted him to stay. I find that really interesting. In verse 20, it says, when they asked him to stay for a longer period. You look at that, I'm just, that screams to me, open door, right? They want me to stay and preach to them. I'm going to stay. That's what I'm thinking. Paul declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if the Lord wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And so this vow was something that the Lord had willed, and Paul could not deviate from it even for good reason. Now, that might not seem very significant to you, but that short little detail actually says a lot to us who live in this fickle, non-committal, feelings-driven culture. You see, Paul was resolved to follow Christ in all things, regardless of what may come. He was devoted and committed to following the revealed will of God that God had made known through his word and prayer. And even when passion and and compassion and, and sort of like opportunity would compel him to want to stay there in Ephesus, I mean, who wouldn't be tempted to remain if they asked you to stay? Paul trusted in the Lord's direction, and he kept his vow. In the providence of God, he was able to later return to Ephesus, but at that moment, he had to entrust these Ephesians to the Lord and to the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila as he made his way to Jerusalem and then on to Antioch. But friends, in Paul, we see, we get a picture of what faithfulness to Christ is meant to look like. This focus on strengthening the church and doing that in the will of God. Doing it with just this active desire for obedience, striving to live in dependence upon the Lord, not according to fickle feelings or or personal preferences. A Christian, as God defines it, is committed to engage and evangelize, to establish, equip, and expand, all the while living in dependence and in direction on the Lord's will rather than your own. It's New Year's, right? We think of New Year's resolutions. Resolution number one, strengthen the church in the will of God. Let that be yours this year. And so we see this priority, right? Strengthening the church in the will of God. But second, that priority requires accuracy. It's not just anything goes, but accuracy of both life and doctrine. Now those who would argue that doctrine divides has a hard time with this passage. 
I would say to them, yes, doctrine does divide. It divides between believer and a false professor, right? But for those who follow Christ, we should be striving every day for greater and greater clarity and faithfulness to the teaching of Christ. And that's doctrine. The gospel is doctrine. You can't avoid doctrine. So are we going to be accurate in it? In verse 24, we meet a Jew named Apollos. He's a native of Alexandria who came to Ephesus. And here we see that he's an eloquent man. He's competent in the scriptures. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, this guy is a sharp cat. This is the kind of guy you want to be a part of your church. This is the kind of guy you want to pour into and develop. I mean, look at him. He's a gifted preacher and teacher. He's bold and eloquent. He's fervent in spirit. He's competent in the scriptures. He taught Jesus accurately. He has this perfect combination of reason and zeal, right? So logos and and pathos, as as Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it, logic on fire. This is exactly the kind of guy that you want to develop and send out as a leader. But there's just one problem. He knows only the baptism of John. And so you see right there, Baptist doctrine is important, right? Baptist, we got to say that, right? We got to point that out. Now, the baptism of John was different than baptism in the name of Jesus. Now, both of them were baptisms of repentance of sin and of faith in God's promise of the coming Christ. So they both had that in common. But Christian baptism, or let me, let me back up here. John's baptism was a baptism of preparation for the coming Christ. Christian baptism is the faith-filled identification with the fulfillment of the coming Christ and all of the blessings that come along with it. Union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection through faith in him for the remission of sins. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to cause us to be born again to a living hope. The commitment to walk in a newness of life and in fellowship with Christ and with his church. The difference is like going to the pool and going ahead and taking that preparatory shower that they tell you to take, you know, get all wet there, versus going to the pool, taking the shower, and actually jumping in and spending all day in the pool. Now, both of them have gotten wet. Both of them have prepared themselves to receive that gift. But only one of them has enjoyed the day at the pool. And so Apollos had repentance and faith in God's promise right, but he did not necessarily have union with Christ regeneration, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and fellowship with the church right. He didn't see how that connected to a proper understanding of Christian baptism. And so, he, as he began to speak boldly in the synagogue in verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, and they got up and they publicly denounced him. They started bashing him all over the internet. And they said, this guy is a heretic, And we're throwing out everything that he says is absolute rubbish. No. We see that they came alongside him. Respectfully, privately, lovingly, to correct this error. 
They recognize the need to take him onto the side and explain more accurately the way of God. Now, they didn't ignore it and say, well, you know, these doctrinal differences are really petty. They don't matter. It's really okay, right? Nor did they minimize the error, right? And just, you know, or any of that. They, they didn't treat him as a heretic, as a false prophet, or as a hardened believer. They didn't baptize him, so he's clearly a Christian, and you could also go so far as to say, you know what, they, they, I would assume they clearly appreciated how the Lord had gifted this man and they wanted to see him use those gifts for gospel purposes. They respectfully came alongside him to clarify and explain the way of God more accurately. Friends, their purpose in this confrontation was to seek the glory of Christ and the good of Apollos and his hearers. It was meant to be an encouragement, an admonishment, not this hard public rebuke. Now Priscilla and Aquila, um, they loved him. It was, it was love that motivated this. And, and notice here that this responsibility didn't just fall to the apostles or the elders of the church in Ephesus. You've got Priscilla and Aquila were the ones, these faithful members that came alongside him and explained this way more accurately. They did so in a Christ-exalting, God-honoring way that would build up their brother, not seek to tear him down. And you can't look at this and and say that doctrine doesn't matter or or that theology is just for men and not for women. I've I've heard both of those things many, many times, right? Because here you have two ordinary church members. One of them is a woman, and they're helping Apollos to understand this way more accurately. And friends, also, we have to recognize the character of Apollos. This is a humble, teachable man who earnestly desires to be faithful to Christ in his doctrine. So he's not staunch, he's not hard-hearted, he's not just holding to his traditions out there and and won't hear anything otherwise. This is what I'm going to choose to believe and to heck with you about it. Now we see this man earnestly and eagerly ready to reform his misunderstanding for the glory of God and for the good of the church. And it was that character and that corrected conviction over and above his competencies that led the church to encourage his desire for ministry. In verse 27, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the church didn't be like, whoa, 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 buddy. Instead, we see that the brothers encouraged him and they even wrote letters to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, we see that he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing that by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So given the fact that this man is not only competent, but a man of character and of deep conviction, they encouraged him. They, they confirmed his ministry. They, they wrote letters of recommendation because they saw what kind of man he was, and the result of that was that he greatly strengthened the church in Achaia. This intentional pursuit of accuracy of both life and doctrine is what led them to develop and multiply leaders within the church. And the fruit is that disciples were strengthened, 
people were saved and the mission of Christ was expanded. That didn't happen because they rejected doctrine. It didn't happen because they minimized and said, you know, it it doesn't matter. Believe whatever you want. As long as you profess the name of Jesus, then we're okay. Just go on and do what you want. Now, we see that, that by requiring accuracy, both of leaders and the disciples within the church, the church grew. The mission multiplied. Paul had faithfully trained up Priscilla and Aquila and left them to help in the work there in Ephesus, and their intentional pursuit of faithfulness to Christ resulted in the developing and the sending of Apollos to Corinth, and the church was strengthened, not just in one place, but in many. So the work was multiplied. Friends, this is what we want to be about. This is why I came here and planted this church in this area, because I saw the need. But I knew that the solution wouldn't be to just, okay, I'm going to go as, as weakly and as lightly as possible in order to fill the seats as fast as possible. But I knew that in order for us to be a healthy church that reached generations for Christ, a church that would stand the test of time, it required accuracy. Accuracy of life, accuracy of doctrine. That's why I preach as long as I do. So if you come here and you're just looking at the time, you just got to know... As long as I'm up here, that's not going to change. It's not because I'm mean or because I like to talk a whole lot or anything like that, but because I take this responsibility seriously. I want you to know and love Jesus with all your hearts, and I want to see you grow in faithfulness to him. I want to see you come to know doctrine and to be like that Priscilla and Aquila there who's like, you know what, it doesn't, you don't have to say, okay, well, I don't really know about that issue of doctrine, you know, like baptism. Don't really get it being a part of this Baptist church. Maybe you should go talk to Chet. No, I want you guys to be the ones to be like, listen, let me tell you why this is a beautiful and glorious thing. That's what I want of you guys. That's what we want of you guys. And there's no reason not to. And so what is that going to look like for you? What ways can you pursue greater faithfulness to Christ in both life and doctrine over the next year? What's it going to look like for you to be more accurate so that you can participate in faithfully strengthening the church of God? And so... We've seen that strengthening the church in the will of God requires accuracy, third, for the salvation of souls and the glory of Christ. Now, Apollos was a believer before Aquila and Priscilla came alongside him and more accurately explained the way of Christ to him. And so you might say, okay, well, if he's a believer, then what does it really matter? Well, they did so because of the danger that it posed for those who would hear him. And we catch a glimpse of that in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. Notice it's, they're called disciples. But these are disciples of John the Baptist, not disciples of Christ. You see, not all disciples are disciples of Christ. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Which kind of leaves me to wonder, is like, how faithful a disciple of John were you? Because I'm pretty sure that John talked a lot about this one who was to come after him, who would baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like, you know, 
essential doctrine number one coming from John. So, you know, I don't really know. But anyway, he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now, I don't know if they heard from Apollos, but you do see the similarities. Apollos held to John's baptism. These disciples held to John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized you with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they were baptized upon profession of their newfound faith in Jesus. The more clearly and accurately tells the way of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not that baptism saved them. Like, oh, you got baptized in the wrong mode. You got to get baptized in the right mode in order to be saved. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And so, these twelve, though they are called disciples, were not Christians. Now, this is more than a secondary or tertiary doctrinal issue, the way that it was with with Apollos. This is now one step further. They had not even heard of the Holy Spirit, let alone having received Him. They were not believing in the coming Christ Jesus, of whom John was speaking, because when they did hear... They were baptized in his name. And so though they were professing to be disciples of John, who had even received baptism of repentance, they were not trusting in the one to whom he pointed because they did not recognize that Jesus was the Christ. They were waiting on the idea of a Christ, waiting on the idea of a coming deliverer, but they had not received salvation by faith in Jesus' name. They didn't even know that Jesus was the Christ. Their hope was not in him personally, only in some idea of him. So they, again, were like the kids, wet from the shower, standing at the edge of the pool, but they had not jumped in. And Scripture is clear that all those who have repented of their sin and believed in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus for their forgiveness and reconciliation to God would receive the Holy Spirit to dwell within them. And they had clearly not. They didn't even know who the Holy Spirit was. And so, in an act of God's mercy, when Paul laid his hands on them and prayed for them, the Holy Spirit came upon them just like at Pentecost in a way that was undeniable. They had clearly received the Holy Spirit. Now they were truly disciples, not because they were speaking in tongues or prophesying, but because the Holy Spirit had clearly come upon them. Friends, without a true, genuine, personal faith in Jesus, not not some vague hope of a coming deliverer, there is no salvation. Without faith in the life-giving, sanctifying, word-declaring power and person of the Holy Spirit, there is no salvation. And without the evident reception of the Holy Spirit, not in terms of speaking in tongues or prophesying, but in the true fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, in your life, his presence that seals us and assures us that we are children of God, that leads us to be conformed even more and more and more into the image of Christ. 
then there is no salvation. You see, though these 12 men claim to be baptized disciples, true faith in Jesus and the evident work of the Holy Spirit was necessary for them to truly be saved. And by the grace of God, as they heard the gospel proclaimed by Paul, they believed in the name of Jesus. And they were. So the question for all of us is, do you have a genuine, earnest trust in Jesus? I'm not talking about some vague hope in the forgiveness of your sin through a Redeemer, but a love and trust in Christ, your Lord and Savior. Can you see evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life that leads you to love Jesus and to hope in Jesus and to trust in Jesus and to want to be more like Jesus? Friends, that's the difference between truly being saved and not. Is even if you might claim to have some faith in God, those who know Jesus and love Jesus want to follow Jesus ever more accurately for the salvation of souls and the glory of Christ. Those who are truly repentant and believing become lifelong learners of Jesus. Now, in in verses 8 through 12, chapter 19, we get another look at Paul engaging, evangelizing, establishing, equipping. He reasoned and he persuaded. I, I think that that's really important. Right, Because so often we try to separate this out. Like either you've got these sort of cool, calm, logical, intellectual kind of guys over here, or you got sort of these passionate, you know, just like zealous preachers who get loud and show a lot of emotion over here, right? And we think that it's got to be sort of one way or the other, when in reality it's supposed to be both. It's supposed to be logos and pathos, reason and zeal, or as Lloyd-Jones said, logic on fire. When some people became obstinate in their unbelief and they began speaking of the way of, evil of the way of Christ, Paul withdrew from the synagogue. He began preaching to the Gentiles in the hall of Tyrannus. And he continued to do so until all the residents of Asia, both Jew and Greek, heard the word of the Lord. And during that time, God was doing some extraordinary things. Just people were touching Paul's skin with handkerchiefs and aprons, and people were being healed. Demons were being cast out. You look at that, you're just like, man, that's amazing. Look at the blessing that comes from following Jesus. And of course, many people wanted in. And so you've got these itinerant Jewish exorcists who they come along And they say, you know what? I want to be a part of that. Obviously, that's working for Paul. And so I'm going to get some of that. And so they went and they started invoking the name of Jesus. Saying this this Jesus, I don't even know who he is, but this Jesus whom Paul proclaims, that I'm proclaiming to you. They don't know him. They don't believe in him. They don't follow him. They're only invoking his name in order to get what they wanted. Does that sound familiar at all to you? I don't know about you, but I've, I've encountered a lot of people in my life that this is the way they operate. They really don't want anything to do with, with Jesus, truly following Jesus, but they want to invoke his name. 
We see that in, in different religious groups, maybe, maybe among Mormons or, or Jehovah's Witnesses or, or uh, Unitarian Universalists or Hindus who will just say, yeah, I'll add Jesus in. Or maybe you see it on a more day-to-day basis, maybe among family members or, or acquaintances that you come into contact with. And they're like, they are as ungodly as they get. They want nothing to do with following Jesus, but they want you to pray so that Jesus will give them what they want. They want to invoke the name of Jesus, all the while not following him. And friends, this is common. This is all too common in our day. Throw out the the miracles, throw out the exorcism. That idea of invoking the name of Jesus in order to gain the blessing of Jesus without following Jesus, right? That's prevalent in our culture. But the evil spirit didn't think too highly about this attempt to call upon the name of Christ. He says, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And he leapt upon these seven sons of Sceva and overpowered them all so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, guys, when you read this, you cannot tell me that the Bible is not entertaining. This is hilarious. Like, I get images of Looney Tunes in my head, you know? It's like this this whirling ball of dust, you know, kind of flying around. And somebody's like trying to claw their way out and gets dragged back in. And these high-pitched screams. And somebody gets punched in the face and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they they have to run away naked and wounded. You know, like those barrels with suspenders around them, you know, just kind of hobbling their way out of there. I mean, that's the image that I get every time I come to this account. It cracks me up, seriously, every single time. But friends, notice here, the demon knows who Jesus is. The demon knows who belongs to Jesus, but the guy that tries to just invoke the name of Jesus, he's not too impressed. We can be so careless, so flippant, throw out the name of Jesus in ways that demons themselves would not disrespect. We invoke him just like saying, please and thank you. But if that's all the Christ we have, it's going to leave us naked and wounded. Invoking the name of Jesus is not faith in the name of Jesus. And what is worse is that it's an attempt to rob him of his glory. But in verses 18 or sorry, 17 through 20, we get a picture of the effects that a genuine faith in Christ produces for the salvation of souls and the glory of Christ. It says this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found, them, uh, found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The work of God is made known to the community at large. 
true and genuine fear of the Lord increases. The name of Christ is extolled. Genuine repentance and faith is expressed as people turn away from their sin. They turn away from all that would hinder them and lead them astray. All that would lead them away from Christ, willing to burn them and destroy them, to to let nothing separate them from Christ. There's this serious concern for holy living. And the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Friends, these are the effects that a true faith in Christ has. Not in some paltry, self-defined substitute. Not simply by invoking the name of Jesus without truly believing in him. Friends, this is not going to be the results. If we're trying to to hold on to some self-defined substitute. Of saying, I'll follow Jesus this far, no farther. Or if I'm going to define Jesus the way that I want to define him, it's not going to work. The church will not be strengthened in the will of God. The church will not grow in its accuracy. Souls will not be saved. And the glory of Christ will not be exalted. And so friends, I hope you can see from this passage that faith in Christ is in no way meant to be self-defined. We are not the arbiters and the determiners of our faith. Genuine faith in Christ will have a particular method, a particular theology, a particular character, a particular ambition, which is not determined by us, but by God in Christ. And we don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to minimize or reduce. We don't get to simply invoke the name of Jesus without truly following him. My friends, I've got to ask you, why on earth would we want to? When we recognize what the Lord has done for us, and that while we were still sinners, God so loved us that he sent his son to do what we could never do, to live a perfect life, to die and to rise again, so that we, rebels to the will of God, might have Life eternal. The fact that God would sustain our lives to to give us the very breath that we use to curse his name and allow that to continue until that right time where he makes the glory of Christ known to us in our hearts. When we think about all the kindnesses, all of the blessings, all of the mercies that we have been given, How God has made himself known through the faithful witness of his word and prayer, through the proclamation, through the witness of the church, so that we might come to know the glory and the beauty of Christ. By grace through faith, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the deception of of trying to live out some man-made substitute, some faith, some desire, some, some... some form of worship that is not from him and to deliver us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Because that's what we've been given. And so why would we want to look anywhere else? Why would we want to hold on to our sin any longer? Why would we say to God, I still want to be in charge of what I want to believe and what I I don't. 
Why would we want to try to dictate the terms of our faith rather than fully embracing the one true faith that gives life and freedom and healing and joy to our souls? And so, friends, I'm pleading with you, do not settle for substitutes. Do not settle for some man-made, cheap imitation. Know Him. Know Him truly. Know Him deeply. Know Him intimately. Know Him with all of your heart. Let that be your ambition, to know Him accurately. To know the glory of Christ for the salvation of your soul and for the souls that the Lord has brought into your life. Friends, that is where true joy is found. It's not settle for some worthless, self-defined alternative. If you're looking for some sort of New Year's resolution, let that be it. That you strive, by the grace of God, to strengthen the church in His will more and more accurately for the salvation of souls and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you have not left us to ourselves. We thank you that you have made your will and your ways known to us through your word, through prayer, through the encouragement and edification of your people, the church. We don't have to strive to wonder constantly if we're able to please you, if we're able to honor you we're following the right way because you have made it known. So Lord, we do pray for our hearts that we would in no way be inclined to try to dictate the terms of our relationship with you, but would recognize you as perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly wise, perfectly true, perfectly loving, and perfectly for us in Jesus so that we would long to look nowhere else. It's in his name we pray. Amen.